Now, most, if not all of us, wouldn't be here this weekend if we did not have either some fundamental affinity for the categories of the Bible or some interest in or curiosity about the categories of the Bible. But we have to face the fact that when we're bearing witness, increasingly we're bearing witness in a secular world. Now, I I know there's a residue of confessional Christianity in Northern Ireland and so on. It's not as uh, sort of theologically and biblically barren as, let's say, Yorkshire. Yorkshire, um, fewer than 0.9% attend church once a month. And 0.4% of those are evangelical Christians. And both numbers are declining. That's approximately the same percentage you find in Japan. Now, compared with that, Northern Ireland is a pretty rich place, theologically, biblically speaking. I understand that. And yet the fact remains that increasingly, if you walk the streets of Belfast and you ask somebody what um, the Bible is about, you get some bizarre answers. When I do university missions in most countries in the Western world, um, the majority of my hearers don't know the Bible has two testaments. And now suddenly we're supposed to turn them on to Melchizedek? You see, even categories like priesthood, well, of course, it's Ireland. There's a lot of Catholic background and so on. But, you know, in recent years, last 15 years or so, priesthood hasn't come under very good odor here either for all kinds of reasons. But nevertheless, some with Catholic background, they at least have a residue of of, of uh, happy sentimental associations with, with priesthood. And some of, la- of, of Anglican persuasion could say something similar. But, but increasingly, if you have an unchurched background, what does priest mean, for goodness sake? Some weird dude that goes around in a black skirt? I mean. And temple? Temple? Well, cathedral, I understand, but temple? And covenant? I mean, why don't you just use a word like contract and be done with it? What's the difference between a contract and a covenant, for goodness sake? And, and then you, you start pressing onto all the categories that make the Bible cohere, and you discover that very, very few of them have any residence in contemporary secular culture. Very few of them. And yet the fact of the matter is you cannot understand the Bible well, and you cannot preach Christ richly, unless you begin to trace out those streams, those trajectories of redemptive history, the things that tie the whole Bible together, running right through. A huge part of Christian responsibility in the local church, in Bible studies, in evangelism, a huge part of Christian responsibility is to try to make sense of how the Bible coheres, to do some translation work, as it were, between the categories used by the Bible and the complete absence of those categories in modern, Western, secular culture. Some of our hymns are being changed because of that, you know? Here I raise mine Ebenezer was what we used to sing. Now it's hitherto you've helped me or something. But, But that's the reason why we've made those accommodations, of course, is precisely because nobody knows what an Ebenezer is anymore because people don't read their Bibles, even in local churches. And so the resonance of biblical language, the resonance of biblical categories gets, gets diluted and, and, and drained away. Now, when you read through the epistle of the Hebrews, there are a number of these biblical categories that all come together. Temple is one of them. Covenant is another. Priesthood is huge. Sacrificial system. Day of atonement. Even categories like faith, as we'll see tomorrow morning, take on overtones that that faith never has in modern Western culture. And of the priesthood category, the most important things that are said here have to do with Melchizedek. Yet Melchizedek shows up in the Bible only twice in the Old Testament and in only one book in the New. Yet here he is assumed to have overwhelming 
importance. Mind you, one of the two passages in the Old Testament where Melchizedek is mentioned, namely Psalm 110, is the Old Testament chapter most frequently quoted by the New Testament. Psalm 110 is quoted more often in the New Testament than even Isaiah 53. So it is of pretty foundational importance. Still, this book makes a huge amount out of a track, a line, the Melchizedek line, that is a subtrack of a priestly theme, and both of these have very few resonances in our culture. Why, then, does the Bible make so much of them? Well, um, in this case, I think that it will be most beneficial if we look at the, old, the two Old Testament passages first. I'm glad that the scripture text that was read tonight was Numbers 14. And then the Old Testament text that was read the first night was Psalm 110. So both of those passages have been read in this august assembly. And um, we are going to look at those two passages before we turn to Hebrews 7. Then I'll read a large chunk of Hebrews 7 and we'll continue with our exposition of Hebrews. So turn first to Genesis 14, the passage that was read a few minutes ago. Now, what is actually said here? When you speak of a war, four kings against five, you're not supposed to be thinking of a war the size of World War II and thousands of tanks racing across Europe and panzer divisions and that, that sort of thing. You, you hear, Cater Leomer, king of such and such a place, or this chap, king of Sodom. Now, these cities in the ancient world often had only a few thousand people in them. It was rare for a city in the ancient world to have 100,000 people. That was really quite rare. So what you're supposed to be thinking of in terms of our categories is something like a small-town mayor. Now, he, he might be called a king, but, 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 but it's a small-town mayor with a kind of local militia, a raiding squad. That's the, the scale of thing. Um, and, and now you've got four of these chaps, led by this man called Keter Leomer, from north, up country, north toward Damascus area, who increasingly are coming south in raiding parties and capturing the goods and sometimes the women and children, um, occasionally the men to make slaves of them, of, of, of various small towns farther and farther and farther south. There's no central authority. There, there is no national military or anything like that. So <clears throat> that's what's happening. They're heading farther and farther south until they're so far south now. You're on the west side of the Dead Sea, um, south of, of Jerusalem, and, and, and coming to the area where, where Abraham lives and where Sodom and Gomorrah, those ancient cities, are. And, uh, and Lot lives in, in one of these towns. So there is a skirmish, four kings against five, and typical of those uh, sorts of wars, um, they're, they're sort of running wars. They, they, they clash. And then one side begins to retreat, the other side chases them down, chases them down, butchers as many as they possibly can. Then they go and steal all their cattle and their wealth and their women, and, and off they go. But now Abraham hears about this, and we're told that he has 318 trained men. Now, you're not supposed to be thinking of SAS here, mm -hmm. um, complete with all the equipment, you know, Heckenkochler um, uh, machine pistols and RPGs and 40 caliber sniper rifles and things like that. You're not supposed to be thinking in those terms and just disturbingly fit and so forth. Um, no, no, it, it's, 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 it's trained in the sense that they've been reared in his home, in his household, and they're trained to guard his own flock. They're pretty tough dudes, all right, and they, they know how to be outside, and they can run, as we'll discover, for a long distance, something like 150 kilometers, and they just keep moving, keep moving, keep moving, chase, chase these bad guys down. Moreover, Abraham himself is, um, is linked with others. Three names are mentioned, and probably they are small-town mayors themselves with their own troops, um, Aner, Eshkol, and Mamre. So it's those four under Cater Leomer, and Abraham and his further three, and the men that they can gather together. Probably altogether, Abraham didn't have more than a 1,000 men with him. Still, it's, it's a good number. And they, they start 
chasing them down. Because although it might have been several days before Abraham actually got the report, at the end of the day, the people heading north are, are, are bringing cattle with them and sheep with them. And, and so they're, they're moving much more slowly, whereas these men, they would travel as lightly as they possibly could, and they're, they're, they're on a sort of a, a fast march, a running trot, and they just keep moving, 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 eating up those miles, and they finally they, they, they catch them. And we're told that when they catch them, they're, they're attacked at night, and then they pursue them as far as Hobah, north of Damascus. That's into Syria. They just keep chasing them and chasing them down. In other words, they want to give them such a thrashing and kill so many of them that they'll never come raiding down into the south again. That's what's going on here. And by this means, then, Abraham recovers all the goods, verse 16, brings back his relative Lot and his possessions together with the women and the other people. Verse 17. After Abram returned from defeating Kedorlaomer and the kings allied with him, the king of Sodom came out to meet him in the valley of Shaveh, that is the king's valley. Now skip 18, 19, 20. 21, the king of Solomon said to Abram, give me the people and keep the goods for yourself. Now he was not being generous. That was part of the law of salvage at the time. In other words, um, the pay for these chaps who went out and actually caught up with the bad guys and taught them a lesson, the pay was supposed to be all the goods, the cattle, whatever gold they had, money, and so on. But the people then went back to the original town. So Sodom is not being generous. He's just saying, okay, keep up with custom. Thanks very much. Now give me the people back. Do you see that? That's what he's saying. But Abram said to the king of Sodom, with raised hand, I have sworn an oath to the Lord God, most high creator of heaven and earth that I will accept nothing belonging to you, not even a thread or the strap of a sandal, so that you will never be able to say, I made Abram rich. Now the point is, Abram knows that Sodom and Gomorrah are even in those days proverbial for wickedness. They're just disgustingly evil towns. Lot was really stupid to go there. And, and he realizes with this sort of malice in the town, he, he doesn't want to set himself up so that he becomes the object of their envy. You see, if as a result of this, Abram seems to be a little more prosperous than Sodom as it's beginning to rebuild, might become, might become really angry at Abram. You know, Abram wouldn't be the rich dude he is with all the men and the cattle and, and, and spread out all over the countryside if it weren't for us, you know. He, he should have been a little more generous and given some of this stuff back. It's easy to see how the logic would go. Even if it was the customary law of salvage that Abram should have had all of this, he realizes how, how difficult a situation this could put him in. So he's put himself under an oath. I will not accept even a thread from you, so you will never be able to say, I made Abram rich. I will accept nothing but what my men have eaten and the share that belongs to the men who went with me. That is, on the way up, they carried so few goods with them that on the way back, the way they actually provided food and nourishment and so on was, in fact, to kill some of the animals and have their lamb chop barbecues and so on on the way back. What are you, what are you supposed to do? They have to eat on the way back. That, that's gone, he says. And I can't speak for Aner, Eshkol, and Mamre. Whatever is their share, that's up to them. They can have that. But for me, I'm not going to take one red penny. Now, I followed the flow of the text and left out verses 18, 19, and 20, and the text makes perfect sense like that. In fact, when you read the end of verse 17... It seems to flow right into verse 21. It reads more smoothly if you take 18, 19, 20 out. And this is actually suggested to some critics of the Bible. You know, verses 18, 19, 20 weren't original. Originally, the whole thing flowed quite smoothly from 17 to 21. And some character inserted those verses later and so, sort of disrupted the storyline. But one does not need to be so cynical. They're inserted here, all right, but they're inserted by the author. And they have a variety of functions. One of the obvious functions is that this chap, Melchizedek, he, he serves as a foil to Sodom. Because Melchizedek is treated by Abraham in a very different way from the way Sodom is treated by Abraham. So the two men begin to stand over against each other. Right in the storyline, you get a clearer view of Sodom because you have, as a foil, Melchizedek. Now, what does the text actually say about Melchizedek? He's never been introduced before. Then Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. 
Now, in the Old Testament, as you know, names are regularly significant. And the melch root in Hebrew means literally king. Zedek from Zavak in Hebrew, it means righteousness. His name means king of righteousness. That's what his name means. Just as Nicholas means conqueror and, 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 and so forth. Names have these etymological senses in the Old Testament that are often pretty significant to the storyline. But he's also, we're told, king of Salem. Now, in the ancient world, in Hebrew, you didn't put vowels in. You just put the consonants in. And so a word like Salem can be pronounced in different ways depending on what vowels you put in. You have to decide that as you go along. And these are the three letters that are bound up with the word that comes down to us as shalom. He's king of Shalom. A lot of towns in the ancient world were Salem, and they often had some sort of preface to it. It's not 100% certain, but it's pretty sure that this Salem is, in fact, Jeru-Salem. So he's king of Salem, probably Jeru-Salem. That's the Salem that he's king of. So his name means king of righteousness. The town where he's king is Salem, which means peace. But often with overtones in the Old Testament of not just sort of psychological peace, feeling cozy inside, but, but of shalom, of well-being before God, human beings. That's the name of his town. And what he does is come out bearing bread and wine. Now, there is no overtone that these are sacramental things. In fact, it's the only detail in these three verses not picked up by the New Testament writers. The reason why bread and wine are brought out is simply because they're staples. The, the staples of the staple foods of, 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 of Palestine at the time were bread and fish thrown in sometimes with lamb. So bread, fish, lamb, that, that, that's, that's what you ate. So these troops have come back down toward the south and they're starving. They're, 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 they've just marched 150 kilometers north and then 150 kilometers south, and this time herding all these animals and bringing the people back. And they're, they're hungry. Did you know they slaughtered some lambs along the line and so on? But they, they, they want some decent food. And, and Melchizedek comes out with, with, with ready-baked uh, bread and, and he's, he's going to feed the people and now there's some wine. You, you don't carry a lot of wine with you when you're running all that distance. I mean, that's, liquid is it's heavy. It's, it's weighty. It, they're running. So out comes the staples of the day, bread and wine. Who is he? He's priest of God Most High. Now that's interesting. First of all, he's king, but also he's a priest. Now later on, centuries later, when, when the law of God is established at the time of Moses, one of the things that develops very quickly is only the Levites can be priests. You, to be a priest, you have to come from the tribe of Levi. And then later on, when the kingship is established in the time of David, you've got to come from the tribe of Judah. So the, the kings came from one tribe, the priests came another, from another tribe, and never the twain shall meet. You have to keep those lines absolutely separate. So when, <clears throat> when King Saul, for example, tries to take on priestly responsibilities, it costs him the dynasty because of it. God ordains one, one, one category of worker before him, the kings to come from one tribe and the priests from the other tribe. And, and, and meanwhile, here, centuries earlier, you have a, a chap called Melchizedek who's king and who's priest. He's priest of God Most High. Now, in the Old Testament, when God discloses himself to his own covenant people, to Abraham and all of his descendants and so on. He regularly discloses himself in our English Bibles as the Lord all in caps. Whenever you see the Lord all in caps, it's, it's, it's hiding Hebrew, Yahweh. That is to say, his name, Yahweh, is, 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 is portrayed in English letters often as Lord in caps. The I am, the great I am, is the God who covenants him to, to, together with his people. But here, that's not the name by which he is known. He's God Most High, the Sovereign God. And he blessed Abram, saying, Blessed be Abram by God Most High, Creator of heaven and earth. And praise be to God Most High, who delivered your enemies into your hand. In other words, he not only gives him bread and wine, part of his kingly function, he pronounces a blessing on him, part of his priestly function. Then Abram gave him a tenth of everything. And that's all it said. 
Now, there's a couple of other interesting details about him just the same. When you stop to think about it, one of the things that strikes you about the book of Genesis is that just about anybody who's anybody in Genesis has a genealogy connected with him. In other words, the book of Genesis is really interested in showing who belongs to what line. There are some relatively minor figures who are introduced where you know nothing about their genealogy. But anybody who's anybody in this book, you get the genealogical line. In fact, you can have an entire chapter, like chapter 5. So-and-so lived so many years, begat so-and-so, and so-and-so, then lived so many more years, then he died. So-and-so then lived so many years, then he begat so-and-so, then he lived so many more years, then he died. I mean, all, all these begats, and who's the son of who, and of whom, and, and so on, all, all of this is really very important to keep the storyline together. But here, up pops Melchizedek, he's introduced, and then he disappears. That's it. Three verses. No genealogy, no mummy, no daddy, no sign of birth, no sign of death. He's introduced to the story, then he disappears. That's it. Now, if you're an early reader of Genesis, you've got to be scratching your head and saying, who is this dude? I mean, he really is odd. You can see from a literary point of view that he's a kind of nice foil to Sodom. But what more can you say about him than that? That seems a bit thin, doesn't it? And then you can say a few things. Yeah, his name means king of righteousness. And yeah, he's king of a town called Salem, king of peace. And, and, and he blesses Abraham. What? Blesses Abraham? That means that despite the fact he's given only three verses and no mummy and no daddy, no birth, no death, and no genealogy, in some sense, he's more important than Abraham. It's difficult for us in our democratically orientated world to think in terms of hierarchies and who's up and who's down. But, but the fact is that in a hierarchical society, the person who pronounces the blessing on the other person while receiving a tithe and payment, th those two actions together establish a certain kind of pecking order. So Abraham, who in the Bible storyline, in the storyline of the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Old Testament, in the storyline of the Old Testament, in the storyline of the entire Bible, Abraham is really astonishingly important. He's the founding patriarch of the entire Jewish race. And biblically speaking, he was the one to whom the promise was given, chapters 12, 15, 17. He was the one to whom the promises were given that out of him would come the, the seed that would bless all the nations of the earth. So not, is, not only is he the progenitor of all Jews and thus, thus of the tribal storyline that issues in Israel, the Israelites, and ultimately entering into the promised land and the kingdom of David, but ultimately the great, 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 great granddaddy of Jesus himself. But he's also the one to whom is given this promise, in him shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. An anticipation of something going way beyond the boundaries of Israel. He's an astonishingly important figure. But, so far as this narrative is concerned, he's less important than Melchizedek even though Melchizedek has only three verses devoted to him. So as you're reading your Bible, you're supposed to stop and think, I know this Melchizedek figure has to be important, but for the life of me, it's pretty hard to see why. So who is this Melchizedek? Across the history of the Christian church, there have been two interpretations. One, still very common, is that this is a pre-incarnate visitation of Jesus. That is, before the eternal Son of God comes to us, born of the Virgin Mary in Bethlehem, 2,000 years after these events, before he comes as a human being, he manifests himself in some way in this enigmatic figure, Melchizedek. Now, that view is held by many, many Christians over many, many centuries, and you never want to despise an interpretation that has such a long pedigree as that. On the other hand, I don't think it's correct. For, for a start, you, you don't want to s s sort of appeal to supernatural realities when you don't have to, and you don't have to in this case. More importantly yet, for a reason we'll see in Hebrews 7, I don't think that he can be Melchizedek. For, for a reason we'll see. I think there's something in, in, in the, the, the text of Hebrews 7 that really rules, that, rules out the view that Melchizedek is a, a pre-incarnate appearance of Jesus or something like that. I don't, I don't think it'll work at all. But if not, then who is he? 
And I think he is simply what he appears to be, another small-town mayor. That is, he's king of Salem. But he's a small-town mayor, king of Salem, with some peculiar theological commitments that Abraham would find resonance with. There's no reason to think, for example, that Abram was the only monotheist in the ancient world. Why not accept the fact that there are other people, not yet called by God, not part of this fledgling new community that will issue in the race of the Israelites, but nevertheless other people who have a memory of the fact that God did make everything and, and, and God preserved Noah and his descendants this side of the flood and, 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 and God still exists out there even if there are so many people around that are multiplying deities and multiplying idols and multiplying gods and so on. Um, yet yet why, why should we find it so hard to believe that there would still be some monotheists out there who still believed in one God, God Most High? And if not monotheists, then at least henotheists. A henotheist is someone who believes, well, there may be many gods, but there's only one supreme God. He's God most high, and probably he's a monotheist. He actually believes that God is the creator of everything. In other words, he's got the early chapters of Genesis straight in his mind before Genesis is actually written. He's the creator of heaven and earth. He's the utter sovereign. And he sees himself, he understands his role to be king over this town of Salem. And he has the name king of righteousness. He's the king of this peace, where he, of this, this town where he's, where he's tried to establish some biblical peace and godly order. And he himself is a priest, mediating the ways of God most high, this sovereign God, to his community in the context of a very pagan world. That's all that is said about him. You don't know anything more of his antecedents, which is very strange. And in some ways, he turns out to be more important than Abraham himself, one of the most important people in the entire storyline of the Bible. That's the first Old Testament passage. The second Old Testament passage we need to look at now, Psalm 110. This was read the first night. Now, the first part of Psalm 110 actually reminds you of Psalm 2, which we looked at last night as well. Psalm 2, in which God declares the king, the king of Israel, to be his son. That is, when God appoints the next man to be the king, that makes him his son. Because this king is supposed to reflect something of God's character in justice and in the right to rule, to mediate God's sovereignty to the people. That's what makes him his, his son. Now, this psalm, then, is broken up into two parts. Part one, there's an oracle, what the Lord says, verse one. And then there's a comment on the oracle, verses two and three. Then in the second part, another oracle, verse four. And then a further comment, five, six, and seven. All right. The superscription tells us it was written by David. David writes then, the Lord, all caps, Yahweh, The Lord says to my Lord, no caps. Okay, now, about whom is that talking? The Lord, Yahweh, says to my Lord. But if David is the king, who is his Lord? Now, supposing this weren't written by David. Supposing this were written by a courtier. If the courtier were saying, the Lord says to my Lord, then my Lord would be the king. That would be very much like Psalm 2. If this were written not by David, but by a courtier, somebody in the court, the Lord says to my Lord, the king, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool to your feet. That sounds very much like Psalm 2, do you recall? Where the king, under God, crushes the enemies who are trying to rebel. It would sound very similar. But this text insists that it was written by David himself. In fact, Jesus picks up on that point in Matthew 22 and says, yeah, it really was written by David. So if David is saying, the Lord, Yahweh, says to my Lord, who is my Lord? And because of David's authorship, that's why many Jews and Christians across the ages have understood this psalm to be messianic. 
That is, it is an anticipation of the ultimate Lord who is still to come. In fact, Jesus can go so far in Matthew 22 as to ask, do do, do you know, why does David call the Christ my Lord? In some sense, he's, he's David's son. Fathers don't normally refer to their sons as my Lord in the ancient world, but this son of David's line is also, in some sense, David's Lord. So we'll accept this then as a messianic psalm. The Lord, David says, says to my Lord, what he says to his Lord, to this Messiah, is sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. So that's the kingly function. That's the kingly function. And that becomes even clearer in the comments that follow, verses 2 and 3. The Lord will extend your mighty scepter. That shows that he's talking about the king. Your mighty scepter from Zion, from Jerusalem. Rule in the midst of your enemies. And when God lays bare his arm, after all, your troops will be willing on your day of battle. Arrayed in holy splendor, your young men will come to you like dew in the morning's womb. In other words, here you have a picture of of God so authorizing the kingly rule of the ultimate Messiah that Messiah's people will be ready on the last day. So far, so good. Sounds a lot in some ways like Psalm 2. And then we're told a second oracle, the Lord, Yahweh, in caps, the covenant God has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. Now, where does that come from? You've got to understand that Abraham is about 2000 BC. This is about 1000 BC. You had a thousand year jump and nobody's mentioned Melchizedek so far as our sources go. And now you've got this out of the blue. And for a long time, for many years, as I've worked on the New Testament use of the old and questions like that, I I thought to myself, what on earth is going through David's head as he's penning this? Do do you know? He has the first oracle, that makes sense. The comment on the first oracle, that makes sense. And then out of the blue, now the Lord is sworn and will not change his mind. What's he thinking as he's writing this? Does he understand what he's saying? And you remember that I mentioned last night Old Testament inspiration has come in various ways to the Old, to the Old Testament writers. Um, sometimes, sometimes they get dictation, the way Jeremiah gets dictation. Sometimes it emerges out of their own personal experience, like Psalm 23, that we all quote and learn as children. And sometimes a, a man like um, Daniel can, can have a visionary experience and write it all down and not even understand it and ask what on earth it means. And the only way I could make sense of this is that somehow or other, God gave these words, gave this oracle to David, and dear old David is left scratching his head wondering what it means. That's not recorded, but you can imagine him saying, okay, I've written Psalm 110 now, what does it mean, Lord? But in retrospect, I don't think that's what's happened. I think David does make sense of it. David, after all, unlike many people in the ancient world, he was a literate man. There was not universal education in the ancient world, but David clearly had a lot of education. He came to be called the sweet poet of Israel. He was not only a warrior, he was a writer, a poet, a literary man. And he was a king who knew what parts of the Bible had already been given, including Deuteronomy 17. I mentioned that passage earlier today, too. Deuteronomy 17, verses 18 to 20, where... The kings are told that when they come to power, the first thing they're supposed to do is write out a copy of this law in longhand, in Hebrew, to make it their reading copy, and then they're supposed to read it every day. So if you assume that David, most of the time at least, is really acting as a man after God's own heart, that's the way he's regularly described, you've got to picture David having his devotions, reading his handwritten copy of the law. There's David getting up early in the morning, and reading his Bible. Well, he doesn't have the full Bible that we have, but what he has, he reads. In fact, he's copied it out longhand, and he reads it daily, at least in his good times. He reads it daily. And one day, as he's reading along, he's thinking about his situation now that he's become king. Who's his immediate predecessor as king? Well, King Saul. What happened to him? He got killed. There's no dynasty from Saul. Why not? Well, the reason why is because King Saul 
tried to be both priest and king in defiance of what, of what the prophet had told him must be the case. And so David now looks at his own life. He sees that he must not, he must not be faithless himself. Maybe this was after he received the promise of 2 Samuel 7 that we looked at last night. That is, from, God would establish a, a, an eternal dynasty from David's line. But, but he still remembers what happened to Saul. Now he's reading in his devotions, and he comes to Genesis 14. And you know what strikes him in Genesis 14? There is a king who is also a priest. Now, how weird is that? David's immediate predecessor, he was destroyed and he never had a dynasty established because he was a king who tried to become a priest. But here is a priest king, this chap called Melchizedek, who is so great that even Abram pays him a tithe. And he's called priest and king of God Most High which makes David realize that ultimately there's nothing intrinsically wrong with being a priest and a king. There's nothing intrinsically wrong. Now, it's wrong, this side of the Mosaic Covenant, to be priest and king. You you can't do that. But now follow the history. Again, you're following the storyline. I said we would come back to storyline arguments, but that's what's happening. There's Abraham, and at the time of Melchizedek and Abraham, you have a man who is priest-king. Then a little more than half a century later, half a, a millennium later, you have the Exodus and the giving of the Sinai Code. And there, only the sons of Levi can actually be priests. And then a little later, the kingship is established under David, and only the sons of David can be kings. But back here, you could be a priest-king. According to this Mosaic Covenant, you must not attempt both of those. So under the covenant, David must not do that. But there can't be something intrinsically evil with that. And then he starts wondering, then what is this Melchizedek figure even doing in the Bible? Oh, he's a foil to Sodom. But there is a priest king. Imagine having all of the priestly functions of interceding before God and teaching the way of God, along with all the right to rule and the right to judge, all in one person. Man, that would be the most unique individual And born along by the Spirit of God, he anticipates that ultimately his ultimate great-great-great-great-grandson, the ultimate anointed one, the ultimate Messiah, will be both priest and king. Born along by the Spirit of God, he picks up his pen and he writes, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You, this Lord of whom he is speaking, this messianic figure, this, this one who has the right to rule, this one who has the scepter of Zion, this one in David's line, you, you, the Lord has sworn and will not share his mind, you, you are a priest forever. Not in the order of Levi, you can't do that. That brings you under the curse. You can't do that. The order of Levi stipulates that you have to be in in, in Levi's line. You can't be a son of David. You can't be a son of Judah. But you are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. Now, that makes it another strange passage, but at least it coheres with what is said earlier in Genesis. As a result of these two references, the Jewish tradition developed all kinds of interesting theories about Melchizedek. You've probably heard of the Dead Sea Scrolls, a whole lot of manuscripts that were hidden for a long time. They began to be uncovered in caves around the Dead Sea from 1947 on. In one of those caves is the 11th cave, is a manuscript that we nowadays call 11Q Melk. That is 11Q Melchizedek. It's from the 11th um, cave, hence 11Q, Q for Qumran, 11Q Melchizedek. It's often called simply the Melchizedek Scroll because it has a whole lot of theology about who this Melchizedek would be. And it's just miles away from anything Hebrews does with it. It's just miles away in speculation and so on, so on, so on. I won't bore you with the details. But it shows that Melchizedek was an enigmatic figure for those who read the Bible and, and, and they, they wanted to do something with him. They, they wanted to think up some sort of explanation for who he is. Now turn to Hebrews 7 and see what explanation Hebrews gives. And I'm now going to read 7, 1 to 25. 
The writer has introduced Melchizedek half a dozen times and has wanted to go on, but then he's paused for warnings and further background explanation because, after all, as we saw this morning, these people are so thick. They focus so much on elementary things. They just haven't got enough Bible together. So he fills in more and more detail until finally now he's ready to give his exposition of Melchizedek. And he says, This Melchizedek was king of Salem and priest of God Most High. He met Abraham returning from the defeat of the kings and blessed him. And Abraham gave him a tenth of everything. First, the name Melchizedek means king of righteousness. Then, also, king of Salem means king of peace. Without father or mother, without genealogy, without beginning of days or end of life, resembling the Son of God, he remains a priest forever. Just how think how great he was. Even the patriarch Abraham gave him a tithe of the plunder. Now, the law requires the descendants of Levi, who became priests, to collect a tenth from the people, that is, from their fellow Israelites, even though they also are descended from Abraham. This man, however, did not trace his descent from Levi, yet he collected a tenth from Abraham and blessed him who had the promises. And without doubt, the lesser is blessed by the greater. In the one case, the tenth is collected by people who die, but in the other case, by him who is declared to be living. One might even say that Levi, who collects the tenth, paid the tenth through Abraham, because when Melchizedek met Abraham, Levi was still in the body of his ancestor. If perfection could have been attained through the Levitical priesthood, and indeed, the law given to the people established that priesthood, why was there still need for another priest to come? One in the order of Melchizedek, not in the order of Aaron. For when the priesthood is changed, the law must be changed also. He of whom these things are said belonged to a different tribe, and no one from that tribe has ever served at the altar. For it is clear that our Lord descended from Judah, and in regard to that tribe, Moses said nothing about priests. And what we have said is even more clear if another priest, like Melchizedek, appears, one who has become a priest not on the basis of a regulation as to his ancestry, but on the basis of the power of an indestructible life. For it is declared, you are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. The former regulation is set aside because it was weak and useless, for the law made nothing perfect. And a better hope is introduced by which we draw near to God. And it was not without an oath. Others became priests without an oath, but he became a priest with an oath when God said to him, The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever. Because of this oath, Jesus has become the guarantor of a better covenant. Now, there have been many of these priests since death prevented them from continuing in office. But because Jesus lives forever, he has a permanent priesthood. Therefore, he is able to save completely those who come to God through him because he always lives to intercede for them. This is the word of the Lord. Now take a look at what the author does. We're not going to go through this line by line, but see the big blocks of material. Has the writer to the Hebrews been fair with the Old Testament text? Look at verses 1 to 3 of chapter 7. All that the author does is summarize what's there in Genesis 14, 18 to 20. This Melchizedek was king of Salem. That's true. He was priest of God Most High. That's true. He met Abram returning from the defeat of the kings and blessed him. That's true. And Abram gave him a tenth of everything. That's true. He's just summarizing all the details. The only detail he doesn't mention is that what he actually met him with was bread and wine. That's the only detail he hasn't picked up. And then he starts unpacking it. First, the name Melchizedek means king of righteousness. In Hebrew, that's exactly correct. And then he's king of Salem. King of Salem means king of peace. In Hebrew, that's exactly correct. Without father or mother, without genealogy, without beginning of days or end of life, <coughs> resembling the Son of God, he remains a priest forever. Now, is this text saying he literally has no father, and he literally has no mother, and he literally has no genealogy? Or is it saying, as far as the text of Genesis goes, there's no father, there's no mother, and there's no genealogy? 
to my mind, the argument is made clear by the expression, like the Son of God, or resembling the Son of God. You see, if this really is the appearance of a pre-incarnation, a pre-Christmas appearance of Jesus, if this is really a visitation of the eternal Son of God in human likeness 2,000 years before Jesus actually appears, then the text should read, without father or mother, without genealogy, without beginning of days or end of life, he is the Son of God and he remains a priest forever. But that's not what the text says. He's saying rather, without father, without mother, he resembles the Son of God. He's not the Son of God. He resembles him. He resembles him insofar as, so far as the record goes, there's no genealogy. It's an argument from silence. But arguments from silence, which can be weak, can on occasion be strong. Is anybody a Sherlock Holmes buff here? I know that's yesteryear and all that. But Sherlock Holmes is in the strange case of the dog that barked in the night. And as Arthur Conan Doyle tells the story, um, in, in fact, the dog doesn't bark in the night. That's what makes it such a strange case. This was a dog that was known always to bark when there was a stranger present. And because there was no stranger present when somebody was killed, therefore the person who killed him could not have been a stranger because the dog didn't bark in the night. In other words, the silence of the dog is significant because you expect noise. Otherwise, it's an argument from silence that has no weight. An argument from silence is weighty only when there is very good reason to think there should be noise. Do you see? So an argument from silence here from Genesis 14 is weighty only if there really should be noise. What you expect from Genesis is lots of mention of genealogy. That's what you get whenever anybody's significant. But in fact, you have somebody significant, Melchizedek, and there's no genealogy, no mummy, no daddy. And the author is thinking to himself, the silence is significant. You expect someone like that to be really important and to have a genealogy built in. But the author of the writer to the Hebrews is saying, no mummy, no daddy, no genealogy. Why? He resembles, he is like the Son of God who ultimately finds his roots in eternity past without antecedents, one with God. In other words, the strongest evidence that Melchizedek is not himself a pre-incarnate visitation of the eternal Son is precisely that he resembles the Son of God, remaining a priest forever. And then further reflection on him, just, how think, just think how great he was. Abraham gives him the tithe and that, that's worked out. You could even say in, in some ways that Levi, who demands tithes of everybody else once the nation is established, in one sense he pays the tithe because he's still in the loins of his ancestor David. This is a much more corporate view of, of human personality than we're used to in our individualistic West. But there's a sense in which... I am in my father, and my father is in his father, and his father is in his father. So there's, there's a certain kind of coherence of action from generation to generation. And, and I know it's pushing the argument a bit, but that's what the writer to the Hebrews says. And he knows he's pushing the argument a bit. He says, verse 9, one might even say that Levi, the great grandson of Abraham, who collects the tenth, paid the tenth through Abraham. Because when Melchizedek met Abraham, Levi was still in the body of his ancestor. So, so far now you've got an exposition of the Old Testament text that I, I think is pretty reasonable. And then in verses 11 and following, you get a jump. Now, this is the jump that is really important to understand the purpose of this entire chapter. I'm going to read it twice, but the first time I read it, I'm going to leave out the parenthetical expression in verse 11, because... It's just too much data to keep track of. So in most of our English Bibles, it's either in parentheses or it's in dashes. Leave out the dashes for a bit. We'll stick them back in. We're not trying to ignore something in the Bible. It's just that to get all the, the, the logic coherent uh, in our minds, you leave out the dashes and then we'll stick them back in later. Okay? If perfection could have been attained through the Levitical priests, through the Levitical priesthood, that's the priesthood established in Moses' day at the giving of the law. If that were the final purpose of God in the priesthood. If perfection could have been achieved by that, 
Skip the parenthesis. Why then was there still need for another priest to come? One in the order of Melchizedek. Now that's clearly referring to Psalm 110. Because it's the only place where you have mention of another priesthood who's, who's got to come in the order of Melchizedek. Do, do, do you see? And the argument is, okay, there's Melchizedek back here. Then the, 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 the law that establishes who, 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 who Levi is in the Levitical priesthood, that, that's established here at the time of Moses. But then later, later, Psalm 110 is given at the time of David, which establishes another priesthood. You are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. What on earth is God doing establishing another priesthood if the Levitical priesthood is already sufficient? In other words, if the law of God and the Levitical priesthood is, is enough, if, if, if it can bring about perfection, if it can deal with our sin, if it can deal with our rebellion, if it can reconcile people to God, if it's the final answer, what do you need Psalm 110 for? That's the argument. If perfection could have been attained through the Levitical priesthood, why was there still need for another priest to come? One in the order of Melchizedek, not in the order of Aaron. And then a huge inference for when the priesthood is changed, the law must be changed also. Oh, now that is profound. You see, our problem is we think of the law primarily in classical categories. The law is divided into moral, civil, ceremonial law. Moral law is the law that never changes. The civil law is bound up with the fact that Israel is a nation. And, and, and the ceremonial law is bound up with a sacrificial system. And what we tend to say is the moral law is really important. The civil law is not important anymore because the locus of the people of God is no longer the nation of Israel. It's an international community, the church. And the ceremonial law, it's all been fulfilled in Christ. And there's a sense in which that's a heuristically useful sort of way of thinking of the law. That, 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 that's fine. The trouble is because we so want to think of the importance of the moral law, then we talk ourselves into assuming that the law of God is full of moral law, full, full, full of moral law, and then there are a few other little priestly bits tacked on that we can safely excise. But read Exodus. You have the account of the escape, chapter after chapter after chapter, the plagues and all of that, and then they get to Sinai. God reveals himself in chapter 19. Chapter 20 is the Decalogue, moral law, and then what do you get next? Chapter 21. Lots of stipulations about what we would call ceremonial law and how to build a tabernacle. Chapter after chapter after chapter on what you need to do with a third silver socket from the right and what kind of skins you must use to build this thing and so on. Do you, do, do, do you see? Then some more dramatic um, narrative toward the end of the book, chapters 32 and following. Then you get Leviticus. What do you have in Leviticus? Well, apart from tiny little snippets of history, you get chapter after chapter after chapter on how to build a priestly ephod. What's an ephod? Do you know? And, 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 and what, what clean and unclean looks like. And, 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 and more and more and more of the same. Oh, yes, you do have chapter 19 in there about loving your neighbor as yourself. But mostly, Leviticus is given over to what we would call ceremonial law. Then you come to numbers. What do you have? Well, well you, you have the counting of the people and you have a bit of history. But then an awful lot more of ceremonial law. And, and then you come to Deuteronomy and you repeat the whole thing again. In other words, at the very heart of what we call the Mosaic Covenant is the tabernacle, the priesthood, the sacrificial system. That's at the very heart of it. Because that was how people had to be reconciled to God. That's at the very heart of the whole thing. The heart of the thing, I'll, I'll overstate this, the heart of the thing is not moral law. Oh, oh I, I know. If you, if you think of moral law as law which continues, then, then of course the, the Decalogue is hugely important. The Decalogue is picked up in many, many times. But in terms of how much space is devoted to law, I don't know what the percentages are, 90, 95% devoted to the sacrificial system, the tabernacle, the priesthood. So it's not too surprising that Hebrews writes, for when the priesthood is changed, the law must be changed also. Do you hear what's being said there? The whole law covenant given at the time of Moses, the whole law covenant as a whole, has got to change. And the reason why it's got to change is because a thousand years before Jesus comes, God has already announced that the priesthood has got to change. And if you change the priesthood, 
and the priesthood is so tied into the whole law of God, the law of God has got to change. In other words, a thousand years before the coming of Jesus, there is already announcement in the Old Testament of the principal obsolescence of the Old Covenant. So what on earth are you guys still trying to do preserving the whole thing? That's the argument. All the rest now is teased out along those lines. In fact, go back now to verse 11 and reread the thing, putting back in the parenthetical remark. If perfection could have been attained through the Levitical priesthood, and indeed the law given to the people established that priesthood. Of course, that's what it, it did. Then why was there still need for another priest to come? For when the priesthood is changed, the law must be changed also. He of whom these things are said, that is the things about Melchizedek, belong to a different tribe. And no one from that tribe has ever served at the altar. He comes from the tribe of Judah. He comes from the, from the kingly line. He comes from David's line. It is clear that our Lord descended from Judah. And in regard to that tribe, Moses said nothing about priests. And what we have said is even more clear if another priest like Melchizedek appears when it was become a priest, not on the basis of a regulation as to his ancestry. That's how the Levitical priests were established. You had to belong to, David, to, to Levi's line. You had to belong to Aaron's family. That's how you became a priest. It, it was a, a regulation concerning your ancestry. But now, instead, by the oath of God, the power of an indestructible life, it is declared, Psalm 110, you are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. All the rest of the argument runs all the way down to verse 22 to show Jesus' superiority as a priest. Let me conclude. This passage has two bearings on us, at least two. One is, once again, showing how, by reading the Old Testament narrative aright, reading it intelligently, the Old Testament narrative itself is already announcing the obsolescence of the Old Covenant. It's pointing forward to something greater, to someone greater, a new covenant, to a new priest king, the priest king of King Jesus himself. And the book of Hebrews is constantly doing that. We saw that with respect to the Sabbath rest theme. Entrance into the promised land can't be the ultimate rest because later on God promises still more rest. Here we're told... The priestly authority of Levi can't be the final priestly authority because God later announces a further priestly authority. Do you see? They're reading the Old Testament texts sequentially, salvation historically, to show that if you read them aright, the Old Testament themselves look forward to the ultimate answer. And the ultimate answer is Jesus. Jesus who gives the ultimate rest. Jesus who is the ultimate priest and the ultimate king. And then later on in chapter 9, Jesus who who offers the supreme sacrifice, not the sacrifice of the Day of Atonement in the Old Testament, bull and goat, but himself as the ultimate sacrifice. And he argues along similar lines, those old sacrifices didn't finally work. The ultimate sacrifice comes with Jesus. In chapter 8, we don't have time to look at it all. There the author looks at Jeremiah 31. That's about 6th century before Christ. Jeremiah 31 says, Behold, the days are coming when I will make a new covenant. And the author says, chapter 8, verse 13, okay, if he promises a new covenant, that means the old one's old. And if it's old, then in principle it's obsolete, it's passing away. In other words, the author is full of these readings of the Old Testament show that show that the Old Testament itself announces its own obsolescence. And thus the Old Testament has to be read as pointing forward to the ultimate deliverance, the ultimate priesthood, the ultimate new covenant, the ultimate sacrifice, the ultimate king. And his name is Jesus. Now, that's the first lesson to learn, and it has to do with how you read your Bible. You see, it's showing you how the Bible is put together. But there are immense practical, personal, spiritual lessons to learn as well. If you're a faithful believer in ancient Israel, and you know there's a high priest who offers on the Day of Atonement the sacrifice by which he takes the blood of bull and goat into the tabernacle, most holy place, and offers up animal blood sacrifice to pay for his sins and the sins of the people. You, you, you know who this priest is, and you know that he's getting older and older. He might be a really beloved old family priest, but eventually he dies. And he's replaced by his sons. And his sons might not be nearly as godly. Think of Eli and his sons. The sons were so corrupt. 
seducing women at the temple itself, greedy, extortionate, but they're priests. What do you do with them? They're priests. They're in the right ancestry line. Besides, you can't help but wonder, okay, now this good high priest, this old man, this godly man whom I revere, he's offered the sacrifice of bull and goat. Once again, I can have a clear conscience before God because, because the, the God-ordained prescribed sacrifices have been offered and the next day you, you sin some more and then sin some more and then sin some more. You fly off in a rage. You find yourself tumbling into covetousness. Maybe you're secretly lusting. And, 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 and you know that your heart is sometimes filled with hate towards other people. And you think to yourself, and there's no sacrifice offered again until next year at Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. So the priest can be corrupt. The sacrifice is never enough. You still have to wait till next year. And at the end of the day, can you really believe that the blood of a bull and goat can atone for human sin? And now you have Jesus, who offers one sacrifice for all. It never has to be renewed. It clears the conscience. It's not the blood of bull and goat, it's the blood of the eternal son. And there are no imperfections in this priest. It's not as if he's some corrupt heir of a better priest. He is the eternal son of God. He is himself our maker. And yet he becomes one of us, a human being. So, so we've already been told several times, we will be told several times more in this book of Hebrews, that as the priest, he knows about our temptations because he's a human being like us. He's been tempted in all points as we are, yet without falling into sin. He knows our weaknesses. Oh, God, the Father, knows our weaknesses out of the perfection of his omniscience. But our high priest knows about human weakness from his own experience. And that's why this whole section, so full of detailed theology and exegesis of the Old Testament, ends on a pastoral note. 25. Therefore, he is able to save completely those who come to God through him because he always lives to intercede for them. In fact, the following verses are still running along this pastoral line. Such a high priest truly meets our need, one who is holy, blameless, pure, set apart from heavens, exalted above the priests, above the heavens. Unlike the other high priests, he does not need to offer sacrifices day after day, first for his own sins and then for the sins of the people. He sacrificed for their sins once for all when he offered not the blood of bull and goat, but himself. For the law appoints as high priest men in all their weakness, but the oath, that is Psalm 110, which came after the law, appointed the Son, who has been made perfect forever. Here's a hymn we no longer sing, written by Bruce in 1764. Where high the heavenly temple stands, the house of God not made with hands, a great high priest our nature wears, the patron of mankind appears. He who for men their surety stood and poured on earth his precious blood, Pursues in heaven his mighty plan, the Savior and the friend of man. Though now ascended up on high, he lends on earth a brother's eye. Partaker of the human name, he knows the frailty of our frame. Our fellow sufferer yet retains a fellow feeling of our pains and still remembers in the skies his tears and agonies and cries. In everything that rends the heart, the man of sorrows had a part. He sympathizes with our grief and to the sufferer sends relief. With boldness, therefore, at the throne, let us make all our sorrows known and ask the aid of heavenly power to help us in the evil hour. He is our priest king. Let us pray. Teach us, we beg of you, Lord God, to read our Bibles holistically, tracing out these wonderful lines through Scripture, discovering again and again how they converge on King Jesus, the great King in David's line, 
the great priest in Melchizedek's line, sovereign over us by virtue of his deity and of his kingly authority, and yet the mediator between you and us because he is our priest, the one who has offered himself as the sacrifice, the one who himself is the mediating point, the temple himself around which we gather that we may bask in your presence. O Lord God, open our eyes that we may be quick to turn to him and find relief from our guilt and our fickleness, our suffering, our blindness, our temptations, because he is able to save absolutely those who come to God through him. In Jesus' name, amen.